I'm Jenny from Ohio. I'm Graham from Oxford, England. Hi, I'm Nathan from Planet Earth. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Greg Cott, is uh, the music critic for the Chicago Tribune, where he's been now for almost 20 years. Uh, he's also the co-host of uh, the public radio program Sound Opinions and now the author of Ripped, How the Wired Generation Revolutionized Music. Greg, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Great to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here, Jesse. Thank you. So what do you see as being the start of this story that you tell in the book? Well, I, I basically looked at the last 10 years. I think there's roots in it before that. But I think the real change that we're talking about here, I, I believe we're, we're living in a historical time where the way music is made, manufactured, distributed, consumed, uh, is, is changing uh, forever. It, we're never going to go back. So the transition from the 20th century business model to the 21st century model, we're right in the middle of that. And I try to document that period of transition uh, beginning roughly about 10 years ago to where we are right now. Uh, I, I know that we're living in a historical time. I'm living in the Middle Ages. <laughs> I'm wearing a chainmail helmet right now. Some days I feel like that, too. And I think the music industry for a long time uh, feels like, man, if we could just go back to the Middle Ages, you know? <laughs> it was so much easier back then. You know, we could we could rip off these artists anytime we want. You know, the troubadour would come into town with his loot. It was so much easier to rip him off and, you know, have him entertain the the plebeians, you know, things aren't the same for, for the music industry as a result. Is that why Sting made that whole album just on lutes? Yeah, I believe so. I think he, too, was uh, hearkening back to uh, what it was like in the good old days. You know, this this whole mentality of looking back and remembering, man, remember when we made CDs and we made all that money? <laughs> you know, the lutes, the CDs, it all ties in together. And, and, and Sting's been a big part of it. I mean, he, he of all people would appreciate how the uh, the way things used to be because, because he became a very rich man in that system. He was one of the few. Some of my earliest memories of the music industry, and this will give you a good idea of my age, are those early 1990s inexplicable actions by Prince, which you, which you write a little bit about in the <laughs> book. And, and that was sort of my, my first idea of... Um, you know, that uh, industry rule number 4,080, record company people are shady. <laughs> um, and I wonder, what was the state of the music industry right before the digital revolution? In the in the mid-1990s, where were we at? Well, you know, you know those scenes you have of those shady back rooms with lots of clouds of cigar smoke and fat guys with their feet propped up on a desk, uh, you know, just really satisfied with themselves and all the money that they're making. That's kind of where the music industry was at, like circa 1998, 99. And, and Prince was dealing with, with that kind of environment where a small group of multinational corporations had all the control and controlled the pipeline for getting music out to the public. And uh, we're making a lot of money of it. In 99, this was the biggest entertainment industry in the world. It was a $15 billion a year industry. They, they, they thought they were going to rule the world for the next century. So what was wrong with that? If CDs are selling in record numbers and 
15 million people want to buy Big Willie style or, or whatever the hit record <laughs> of 1998 was. What were the problems in that structure? Well, I think what it became down to was that you had these these big conglomerates running the business, and they became beholden to this blockbuster mentality where if a record wasn't selling a million or two million copies, it wasn't even worth putting out. So you had a lot of worthy artists getting shunted to the margins as a result. It, it, it became so beholden uh, to these big superstar artists with these blockbuster albums, you know, with the big setup time and the multi-million dollar marketing campaigns. I mean, they were spending $10 bucks to break artists like Jennifer Lopez or Alicia Keys, you know. And it became so much about these multimedia, cross-platform celebrities making music and these big corporations selling that music to the public through commercial radio, through MTV, that a lot of the art and the music got lost. I mean, let's face it, the music industry has never been, you know, a, a legion of saints. But at one time when it was a smaller, more regional-based system and industry, uh, there was a chance for these kind of weird, quirky, fringe, idiosyncratic artists. I mean, I'm talking about people like Ray Charles. I mean, geniuses uh, to, to break through. And I, and I would classify Prince as an artist of that ilk. Uh, you know, when he came around in the late 70s, early 80s, here was a guy that, you know, was regarded as kind of exotic, kind of a strange creation, a, a merger of R&B and funk who liked to wear women's lingerie on stage. You know, not exactly your conventional star. And yet he turned into the biggest selling artist of the 80s precisely because he was such an individual, because he was such a quirky personality. And I think what the industry of the late 90s was doing was rubbing out all these quirks and, and basically uh, creating you know these manufactured acts that were designed to appeal to as many people as possible. So you know, hence you have the Backstreet Boys and hence you have NSYNC or Britney Spears. Um, and I think the industry just became so beholden to these blockbuster albums that it it forgot why it was in the business in the first place, which was to release good music. What's the difference between a, a Britney Spears or an InSync and like Bob E. Sox and the Teenagers, a hit group that didn't even actually exist? Right. Well, nothing at all, actually. But, you know, the Bobby Sox and the Teenagers could coexist be, beside, you know, Bob Dylan and Otis Redding. You know, it, it, there, there was room for all of them. I think what was happening by the end of the 90s it was if you didn't sell 5 million records, you weren't worth anything to us, you know. And it was kind of got to this lowest common denominator place where, okay, there's only 40 songs a week being played on commercial radio. What are they going to be? We've got to sink a lot of money into these very few songs, these very few artists. And everybody else didn't really have a chance. I mean, you're talking about an industry that's, you know, there was like 30,000, 35,000 uh, new records being made every year. And just a tiny sliver of those recordings even got a chance to be heard by the public. And I think the public wanted to rebel because they clearly weren't satisfied with what they were getting. Uh, they were turning away from radio. It was, it was becoming boring. You know, commercial radio was, was becoming boring as an outlet for new music. But, you know, where do you go? And that's when the Internet sort of stepped in and offered basically a new way of exposing people to music. Uh, that also came with music at, at an affordable price. Not only did you not have to struggle to find good new music, you didn't have to pay 18 bucks for a CD where you, where you wanted only one song. And I think the, the situation was right for the music industry to fall. All that needed to happen was the, the right tool to come along. And when you started combining the you know uh, home PCs with broadband technology, uh, the end run began around the music industry. The first huge blitzkrieg of change uh, in terms of digital music was Napster and 
which launched in what 1999 yeah. or so. You write in your in the um, in the acknowledgments of your book that you wrote in in the mid 1990s a piece for the Chicago Tribune about MP3s and digital music, and got a call from a major label record executive saying, "What the hell is an MP3 file?" <laughs> um, to what extent was the music industry ready or even thinking about? the way that digital information transmission could change what they were doing? I don't think they were really ready at all. And uh, it's interesting. I had a conversation with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails about this a few weeks ago, and he said one of the issues that he found, because he was right in the middle of it, you know, he was signed to these big labels, and what he realized being there, you know, in the belly of the beast, so to speak, was that these people who were supposed to be running these companies really didn't understand this technology. But not only didn't they, they didn't understand it because they didn't use it. You know, they didn't know what an MP3 file was because it just didn't cross their radar. It was not something that they used in their daily lives. And therefore, they were just kind of oblivious to it. Like, well, what's that? Who's going to ever care about that? It was, you know, this kind of myopic, head-in-the-sand thinking that, you know, is on a daily level. You run into maybe, you know, 100 times a day, right? But then again, these people were being paid seven-figure salaries to anticipate these sort of issues and these sort of changes, and, and they frankly didn't see it. They just weren't savvy enough. And again, I think they got blinded by the fact that they were making all this money. I mean, it, it went from the biggest entertainment industry in the world to a free fall uh, within the span of a couple, three years. I mean, it was a pretty rapid decline. Once Napster hit and then all the peer-to-peer -peer services started to appear, it went from this amazingly profitable industry into a uh, you know a free fall of, of 10 20 percent annually for the last decade pretty quickly and it just grabbed them uh, before they knew what was happening I remember those uh, halcyon days uh, I was a college freshman in 1999 and uh, stole my more than my fair share of music with Napster and audio galaxy and whatnot I really liked audio galaxy I still kind of miss audio galaxy but I remember in those days that one of the big arguments in favor of online music sharing was that it promoted music sales. And in, you know, in direct contrast to that, the record labels were arguing that it was destroying music sales. What do you think, now that we have the benefit of 10 years' experience, has been the actual result in terms of selling recordings? I think there's no doubt that it's it's bit into sales, and I think what what really what really hurt though there there was that the industry took so long to come up with a viable alternative. And I'm not just talking about iTunes because even iTunes is flawed. There is so much more choice available to consumers on the in the wild wild west of the illicit internet world still to this day that nothing the industry has been able to do since has been able to compare. And then you couple that with the fact that they, for a, the longest time, they weren't really trying to say, hey, how can we satisfy these consumers who are clearly telling us uh, they want their music in this form? Uh, rather than sort of working with that energy and the fact that more people were listening to more music than at any time in the history of mankind, you know, they decided to, to sue, crush, destroy uh, this new technology into oblivion. You know, they were fighting it for the longest time. Only now are they coming around to the idea, well, well yeah, well, you know, maybe we ought to start working with this. But it, they've lost basically 10 years in the fight. They can't compete with the fact that the choices uh, out there are much, much greater in, in the illicit world. Even iTunes is presenting just a sliver of, of the really great music that's out there uh, on the Internet. And, you know, as a result, 
you know, uh, it can't compete with what's out there in that alternative universe. Do you think that had they uh, presented a choice like that, say, five or six or seven years ago, that would have changed the path of things? It strikes me that, um, you know, when you're competing with everything for free, it might be it might be tough to come up with a come up with a value proposition uh that keeps that income coming in at anything more than a you know the marginal uh, amount of money that people are willing to pay for convenience i i think the convenience would have if, if they could have if they had come up with a system that was in fact truly convenient you know I mean, we're talking about one stop shopping we're talking about one click of a mouse we're talking about easy, you know, we're talking about high-quality downloads with no viruses, you know, great sound. Um, if those kind of, um, you know, uh, basic consumer needs had been answered early on, I think absolutely uh, they had a chance. But I think the consumers, um, there, was a, there was not only a sense of, well, there's more choice out here at a better price, obviously, but also, you know, I don't mind sticking it to these guys, you know, because they've been treating us so damn rudely for a long time. I mean, there was no compassion at all for an industry that was just behaving the way it was, which is basically treating consumers like idiots, you know, and, and criminals, essentially. I mean, if you apply the standards that, say, were applied at the, in, in the Jamie Thomas trial, which I write about in the book, uh, to the entire population of the United States, you'd have to put about 50% of the people in, in the U.S. in jail. It's the Sound of Young America from PRI Public Radio International. This September, MaximumFun.org is headed east. You can check out the Sound of Young America Live, our live stage show, in Philadelphia September 16th as part of the Philly Fringe. It's a live Sound of Young America program played out before your very eyes with music, comedy, and interviews. Our guests on the Philadelphia show include the Spinto Band, comics artist Charles Burns, the director of the Mutter Museum, and more. Then the next night, we'll be offering the freewheeling comedy of the Monsters of Podcasting. That's You Look Nice Today and our own Jordan Jesse Go. On the 18th, we'll be headed to New York for a live show at the Jerome L. Green Performance Space at WNYC. My guests include Scott Adsit from the NBC Comedy 30 Rock, musicians Nellie Mackay and Andrew W.K., and much more. Saturday, September 19th, the Monsters of Podcasting hit the UCB Theater in New York. For more information and tickets, visit MaximumFun.org. The Sound of Young America Forum is now open for business at MaximumFun.org. Join other listeners and yours truly in discussing the latest shows or the latest happenings in culture and the arts. Just visit MaximumFun.org and click on Forum. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's The Sound of Young America, and I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Greg Cott, is one of the hosts of the public radio show Sound Opinions. His new book is called Ripped, How the Wired Generation Revolutionized Music. I had uh, the punk rock producer Steve Albini on the show from Chicago a couple of years ago. And um, I asked him about the future of the music industry, and he asked to draw a distinction between the future of the music industry and the future of music in that he, he, the analogy that he used was tennis. He said, um, you know, lots and lots of people play tennis because they love tennis, but um, 
you know, relatively few play tennis professionally or aspire to play tennis professionally. So how did this uh, digital music revolution in the late 1990s change music, not for the music industry, but for the actual people who make music? Well, here's the thing that I find interesting about this whole issue is like, you know, people are are saying, well, it's taking money away from the from the artists. Okay, and I understand that that sentiment. Um, there's a lot more love out there for the people who create the music as opposed to the ones who had been selling it all these years and making most of the money. But here's the thing. Artists didn't make a whole lot of money off recorded music anyway. I mean, we're talking about maybe the top 5%, top 10% at most who made significant amounts of money off of recorded music sales in the history of the music industry. For every Metallica, for every U2, for every Madonna who made money off record sales, you had 10, 20 bands and artists who didn't make a dime off of recorded music sales. So to me, it's absurd to say, well, wow, this is really screwing the artists. You mean you mean to tell me the artists weren't being screwed over under the old system? Is it that much worse than the way things used to be? To my mind, the opportunities are here to create a completely new relationship with your fan base that did not exist before because before you needed that middleman. You needed that big corporation or some sort of corporation between you and the fan base in order to get your music out. Something you write about really interestingly in the book is um, the relationship between artists and their business. And you use the example of Prince. Prince is a guy who has always been very involved in his business affairs, especially since he left uh, Warner in the late 90s. But he's also a guy who has, you know, messed up yeah. his business affairs really badly. Yeah. Um, do you think that having somebody like Prince in charge of you know, buying banner advertisements on Pitchfork or something like that is a net positive? You know, I think the part B of of what I was saying about this whole idea of, well, you don't need these big corporations uh, running your business for you because you can do a lot of that stuff yourself as an artist is that artists still do need infrastructure. It's not like, you know, a guy in a band or a gal, in, you know, who's who's singing her songs in a you know, for an audience is is going to necessarily want to do all that stuff on their own. They are going to need a couple of smart people around them to help them with issues. But because there are issues, business issues uh, of, of great complexity out there that, that uh, you know, require a certain amount of expertise. But you're not going to need the tremendous overhead of, of a big corporation or a big record label. What you can do, I think, as an artist is, you know, surround yourself, you know, with two or three people who who have some acumen in this area and some expertise in this area and and deal with issues like licensing your music and and, and, and running a website and booking tours and doing these kind of mundane day-to-day business things that every successful person needs, uh, especially an independent contractor like like a musician, but take care of it on a more modest scale. It's much more manageable. And I think what I'm basically advocating here is the real possibility for the first time in a long time, of a true artist middle class to exist. You know, the way the industry had been going uh, in the last 50 years is trending towards this have and have not situation. It's like uh, living in Reagan's America, you know what I mean? I mean, you either had a lot of money or you didn't have any, you know? And and I think if the same kind of uh, system took place with artists, I, I think now there's a possibility of sort of 
you know, uh, honoring the fact that a lot of people can make nice, modest livings playing music because they don't have to play by those have and have not rules anymore. I mean, it's possible to sell, you know, 10,000 records, 15,000 records, let's say, or, you know, uh, play a bunch of shows in front of, you know, a couple of hundred people in your region uh, every night for four or five months out of the year and make a decent living off of that. And I don't think that the, the old record industry, the late 20th century music industry, really ever understood that or embraced it because it wasn't enough money to, to sustain these huge corporations that the music industry had become. You have a chapter in the book about the band Metallica, who in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, became very famous for fighting music piracy. And I remember watching, I think it was the MTV Music Awards, maybe it was the MTV Video Awards or something like that, um, a comedy sketch starring Lars Ulrich in which uh, he illustrated this point by uh, going to somebody's house who was a music pirate and taking all the stuff out of their room and saying, well, you don't like it when I steal from you. And I think, you know, a lot of people recognize that's not a false, that that, that is a false equivalency in that, you know, when you share music online, uh, nobody is left with less stuff. And the people who say that, you know, just kind of leave it there and say, well, you know, record company people are jerks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's fine. But I wonder if you've actually engaged the complexities of the gray area between stealing is fine because record company people are jerks and Lars Ulrich saying, I'll take all the stuff out of your house because that's what you're doing to me. Yeah, I mean, we're we're dealing with that reality right now, and I think it's uh, going to become even more of a reality in the next uh, five to ten years where basically any sort of uh, uh, copyrighted material that can be digitized is going to be out there and available and readily copied and uh, probably distributed for free. And, I, you know, I'm talking about music, movies, books, newspapers, uh, one of which I work for. It's a scary prospect for people who deal in, in uh, intellectual property. What I find offensive is that for the last 10 years, okay, people recognize this is the reality. It's coming. It's here. It's only going to get worse, quote-unquote, or, or, or more widespread, if you prefer. Let's figure out a way to make that work. I mean, there's a business model to be made there. There are a lot of people accessing this content. I mean, people forget Metallica started its career by basically giving away its music for free. I still have a copy of a copy of a, of a cassette originally made by Lars Ulrich of the first Metallica EP, which he distributed to 100 of his friends and said, please give these out. Copy these, make these for as many people as you can. You know, we need to let people know we exist. Uh, you know, where the problem comes in is that, you know, Lars Ulrich was now a multi, 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 multi millionaire uh, suing Napster in 2001 because he had made all this money off a system that essentially started with him giving away his music for free. Okay. If so I could he, interrupt, the, there is a distinction between somebody giving away their music for free by choice mm -hmm. and somebody who's unable to, uh, uh, you know, s sell their music because of piracy or whatever. Exactly. There is the issue of control, and what I am saying. Uh, I believe that this is this is going to be the reality in the next five to ten years is that the issue of being able to control your intellectual property in the in, in an age when basically that digital property can be digitized and copied and instantly sent out all over the world the instant it, you let go of it is is ridiculous 
you're not going to be able to control it. All right? The technology is always going to stay a step or two ahead of your ability to corral it and control it and determine who gets to access it. So let's just put that aside. I think once artists get past this issue that, hey, I can't control it anymore, it's going to get out there, but I still want to be compensated. That's, I think, the key issue. How do we compensate artists uh, when they've lost control o- over the work? Because they're going to lose control over the work. I, you know, I, I can't say that I'm happy about it. I write books. I, I do, uh, you know, I have intellectual property out, th- out there as well that's being copied and ripped off, if you will, every day on the Internet. Um, how am I going to be compensated for five or ten years? But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's something that, you know, as I said, we're going to have to reinvent the system from the ground up. And right now we have too many entrenched people who are saying, no, 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 we want it to be like the 20th century again. Well, it's not. You know, we were joking about how, you know, we wanted to go back to medieval times at the start here. You know, that's to me the way the record industry is. Is Hey, I'm sorry, it's not 1997 anymore, you know. We have to deal with this new reality and figure out how to make this work. And so far, I don't see enough brain power being invested in, you know, creating new systems that deal with this new reality because the new reality is here and it's just going to be more profound in another five years. We're starting to see uh, big music acts like Jay-Z and uh, U2 and Madonna signing contracts that are uh, what's called 360 deals, contracts that are sort of partnerships between big music companies, um, maybe Live Nation, the uh, performance company or, or a record company or whatever, um, that involve uh, rights to tours and merchandise and recordings and the, basically the whole ecosystem of things that musicians make money from. Do you think that because the record industry is going out of business, that whatever form the music industry takes in the future will be better for artists or better for audiences? Well, I think uh, the people who are, you know, regaining control uh, over music right now are the artists and the fans. I think uh, the, the, you know, the business that had been built up around the music in the last 50 years is the thing that's crumbling. Um, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, I, they didn't see this change coming, and they, they continue to resist it, so good riddance to them. You know, let's adapt to what's going on right now. Um, I do think that the idea of recorded music as a major profit center for the music industry as it was for the last 20, 25 years with compact disc, uh, I should say not the last 20, 25 years, but the years between, say, the early 80s and the late 90s, uh, is gone. I, I think recorded music will increasingly become more of an advertisement for a, a culture around an artist. Um, there are a lot of other things that an artist can do. And the one thing that cannot be digitized, and that is unique, and that is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, is that live performance. Um, you know, if you're good, if your recorded music is good, people hear it, they get excited about it, they're going to come out, they're going to want to come out and see what you're all about. And if you can deliver on that stage, uh, you will have an audience, uh, and you will, and you will be rewarded handsomely for it. I, I, I do believe that. And I think, you know, it's the oldest form of communicating music known to mankind, you know, the, you know, the troubadour going from town to town and playing music. And I think, you know, once again, uh, that is the way, uh, artists are going to make, uh, make their money, make their living. And, and in fact, they always have. I mean, that's never gone away. The uh, artists made most of their money on the road 
even during the salad days of the CDs. What was happening in the CD era is that the record industry was making most of the money, but the artists were, in fact, making most of their money uh, through touring. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us today on The Sound of Young America. Jesse, thanks for asking me to be on. I enjoyed it. Greg Cott is one of the hosts of the public radio show Sound Opinions. His new book is called Ripped, How the Wired Generation Revolutionized Music. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. Our editor is Nick White, our intern, John Kim. If you have thoughts about the show, email me, Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. And I hope that you'll visit us at MaximumFun.org and check out our free podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America.